From NPR News in New York, this is the Bryant Park Project. Overlooking historic Bryant Park in Midtown Manhattan, live from NPR Studios, this is the Bryant Park Project from NPR News. News, information, Batman. I'm Mike Pesca. It's Thursday, July 17th, 2008. And we will be speaking about the real-life possibilities of a Batman. The other night, uh, meaning last night, so it was another night, but I want to be more specific. It was the last night that I experienced. I went to a live comedy concert. You don't get to do that too much when you're hosting a morning show. But Ricky Gervais was in town. Love that guy from The Office. Just a hysterical bloke. And I was wondering, okay, that doesn't mean he's good at stand-up. In fact, I knew his background wasn't stand-up. So beforehand, I went online and saw that he had done some stand-up before, and it was good. So the opening act was this guy, Todd Barry, who's hysterical. And what he did was kind of interesting. Setups and punchlines. That works well in comedy. What Gervais did maybe didn't work so well. He tried. But what he would try to do, it was it was it just didn't work for us and me and, me and my friend Dave, and I think most of the audience were just hysterical and seeing Ricky Gervais, they were going along with it, and that got extra annoying looking around at everyone and you're accusing them. What are you laughing at? It's not that funny. It was just content-free. He didn't really have that much to say. So he spent a lot of time telling stories about funny animal stories and sort of embodying the animals. I know Eddie Izzard does that. Then he spent a long time riffing on nursery rhymes about how they don't make sense. Just not that much comedy gold to mine there. Yeah, he made a couple good points about Humpty Dumpty falling off the wall. Why would you send the king's horses to pick up an egg? What What is less well-suited to repair a broken egg than a horse. But mostly it was just him adopting that kind of quizzical Englishness, you know. And afterwards, my friend and I were just riffing. Too bad only, uh, you know, 4,000 people saw it because what a hysterical inside joke this would be. Just come up with any nurse rhyme. Hickory dickory dock. What kind of doctor? You're a doctor. Any nurse rhyme. Pocket full of posy. Well, why'd you come with posy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you see how that you didn't think that was funny? That was that was my night. All right, on the show today, we will explore whether superheroes could really exist off the screen, the physics behind superheroes in just one second, specifically the Batman. Ted Leo is here to play some rock and some role in the studios. That guy is great. And what's in a baby name? More and more people are giving their kids androgynous names. Parker, Dakota, Sydney. What the shift in names says about us, we will get today's headlines in just a minute. But first... Here's the problem with superheroes. In real life, a radioactive spider bite, it probably just itches and that's all. How about bombarded by gamma rays like the Hulk? That will definitely kill you. And an alien who draws power from our yellow sun like Superman? Oh, what if it's cloudy? These shortcomings all factored into Bob Kane's decision to make his creation, Batman, mortal. Every person that doesn't have superpowers could relate to Batman a lot easier than they could to Superman. In other words, you didn't have to come from another planet to be a superhero. All you had to do was be born rich and build your body into perfection and have the urge to go out and fight crime. That was Bob Kane speaking with Terry Gross on Fresh Air. 
But could that really work? Could a man, even without superpowers, possess the athletic ability to say nothing of the utility belt of Batman? Well, luckily, academics are hard on this matter. Paul Zare, an associate professor of kinesiology and neuroscience at the University of Victoria in British Columbia, tackles the question in his new book, Becoming Batman, the Possibility of a Superhero. Hello, Paul. Hi there. So did you do research into this book or just kind of let your brain run wild? Well, basically, I let my brain run wild to do the research. Um, what I did was I tried to apply sort of whatever's out there around exercise training and, and science related to this kind of thing and try and apply it to Batman. Because obviously, uh, there isn't really a big research program on superhero training that you could really tap directly into. And to find out what abilities Batman has, did you rely on the movies or did you go back to all the comic books? I did both, actually. I mean, the, 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 there's some excellent resources out there, but... Um, you know, Batman Begins was a fantastic example of probably the most realistic Batman, so I drew drew on looking at that, and I, I also went right back to, uh, you know, Bob Kane's drawings in the comics from the 1939 and looked at them all the way through to see sort of how Batman's been portrayed. The problem is, as different artists take on the character, you know, Frank Miller maybe wants to emphasize how he could take a punch. Some of the original artists want to emphasize how agile he is. So once you add them all up, he could probably be faster than the fastest man, stronger than the strongest man, more agile than the more agile man. He becomes truly the superman uh, who still remains a man. Yeah, you raise a really neat point there that uh, if you try and look for the definitive story on a superhero in a comic book, you'll never find it because there's so many different takes on things. And I think the neatest thing about Batman uh, when we try and think about reality, you know, and the possibility of real training for real activities, is that he really doesn't uh, wind up being the fastest and the strongest and this and that, because you can't actually be all those uh, the best at all those things all at one time. Like right. you know, your body just doesn't work like that. Right. Like if, you're, with, if you're going for speed, you can't have the mass to be a weightlifter. For exactly. Yeah. Like you don't see too many you know marathon runners also winning the hundred meter race right. uh, in the Olympics. Some um, different sort of training and. But Batman is sort of trying, the best all-round guy. And when you take all the all-round and add it all up, you wind up with this sublime you know, performance. So what would he look like? What kind of athlete today is the Batman body? Is he like an ultimate martial arts-type fighter guy? Uh, partly, but, but I would say uh, partly that and partly kind of blended with a decathlete. Yeah. I think you know, that's a good example of somebody who's all-round, really, really good at many different kind of physical abilities and skills and so on but has to put them all together. Mm-hmm. And how possible is that? Well, decathletes do it, but that's yeah, not ba- even the guy who wins the decathlon, he's not ready to be Batman yet. No, well, the thing is then you've got to think that's just a metaphor of kind of different activities. They've, he's got to have all the agility. He's got to have all the martial arts training. He's got to have all the different uh, levels of training that um, the, the job description for, you know, do you want to be Batman uh, really would demand. And there aren't any real good I- examples you could directly tied to you could think of different examples of you know navy seals or something like that where you got these guys with this extreme sort of uh, deadly intent and and training and so on but again they're not operating under the same thing that batman is batman's got some really bizarre set of rules he's got to work with that that make the whole thing much more difficult than it might be well what else does he have to work with well i mean the biggest thing if you think about it, you've got a guy who's super trained and he's out there trying to fight crime and fighting against people who are trying to kill him Yet his credo is he will not use lethal force, he won't use a gun, he won't use the same weapons they use. 
So he's kind of fighting an uphill battle all the time. So he has to be even that much better. And, and he's kind of uh, handicapped in terms of what he's able to do. I want to I want to play you. I want to ask you one aspect about the psychology of Batman. Let me let's play a clip from the movie. And this is Michael Caine as Alfred the Butler talking to Batman and getting a little philosophical. People are dying, Alfred. What would you have me do? Endure, Master Wayne. Take it. They'll hate you for it, but that's the point of Batman. He can be the outcast. He can make the choice that no one else can make. The right choice. Here's what I wanted to ask about that clip. We heard in the beginning Bob Kane saying that he thought Batman would be more relatable because he was mortal. But there Alfred the Butler talks about kind of what Batman has become, a guy who lives on the fringes of society and an outcast. Do you think because Batman, because Superman was immortal, people could just idolize him and not really relate to him? Because Batman is mortal, is that one of the reasons why he is often depicted as an outcast? I think maybe that's related, that it could be true. I mean, we we tend to have our heroes, right, whether it's sport or science or whatever we do. And one of the things that's quite bizarre about human beings is, is we like to also knock down our idols. Yeah. We, you know, the human ones in particular, we, we like to see them perform really well, but we also seem to leap up and, and want to watch the feeding frenzy when, when something happens that's maybe not so good. And And I think you've got somebody there with the kind of idea behind Batman because he's got to operate a certain way and he's had to push himself so much and he's it really does put him in a special category where he is becoming ostracized and and a loner and and all the psychology of that 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 is for sure different from somebody like Superman who's front and center and can do this and that, and as you say, Effort, effortlessly in Superman. Effortlessly, there's no training required to do it. He yeah. just is that. Paul Zare is an associate professor of kinesiology and neuroscience at the University of Victoria in British Columbia, author of the upcoming book, Becoming Batman, The Possibility of a Superhero. Thank you. You're welcome. And now let's get some more of today's news headlines, implying that Becoming Batman was a news headline. But in any case, I'm willing to now throw to the BPP's Mark Garrison. This is NPR. Thank you, Mike. The Union for U.S. Airways Pilots says the airline is skimping on fuel to save money. It accuses them of pressuring pilots to carry less extra fuel. NPR's Kathleen Schalk has more. A union spokesman says eight senior pilots and the union have filed complaints with the Federal Aviation Administration. The union also paid for a full-page ad in Wednesday's USA Today, accusing the airline of, quote, a program of intimidation to pressure your captain to reduce fuel loads. The cost of jet fuel has doubled in just the past year, so airlines are scrambling to save fuel by making planes lighter. U.S. Airways has recently removed movie players, redesigned its meal carts, and replaced glassware with plastic to cut weight. But the union says the company crossed the line by second-guessing pilots about how much fuel they need and ordering extra training sessions for pilots who requested more. U.S. Airways says its pilots are supposed to carry at least 60 minutes of extra fuel more than the 45 minutes the FAA requires. NPR's Kathleen Schalk reporting. The president sees the inferno firsthand today. He'll survey Northern California wildfires by air. Firefighters are battling dozens of fires around California. The acreage burned is a state record. Despite the size, there have been relatively few deaths or injuries. California voters will have their say on gay marriage there. Gay groups sued to keep an initiative off the November ballot, but the California Supreme Court will not take the case. NPR's Karen Grigsby-Bates has the story. 
When California's Supreme Court ruled that marriage between same-sex couples would be considered valid and legal beginning in mid-June, conservatives nationwide rallied together enough signatures for a new initiative that would effectively overturn the court's decision. Proposition 8 seeks to invalidate the court's ruling by declaring heterosexual marriage the only legal union in the state. In response, Equality California petitioned the court to consider barring Proposition 8. The organization claimed explanations of Prop 8 on petition signature sheets were unclear. The court declined. That decision means Prop 8 will remain on the ballot and the state will publish voter information explaining the initiative. NPR's Karen Grigsby-Bates reporting, and that is your news for now. More online at npr.org. This is NPR. Every day we hear, every day we here at the BPP have a staff meeting and we all pitch ideas for future shows, call it a pitch meeting, if you will. Sometimes a pitch goes over well, which means we do it on the show. Other times the reaction in the room is more like this. And the weird thing is no one even brought crickets to the meetings. You know, sometimes we love the pitch. Then there's this third category where the producer is like a terrier with a bone and he won't let it go. That was the case with this next pitch. And so here's producer Dan Pashman pitching us. Go ahead, Dan. All right, guys. I got a great pitch for the show. Mm-hmm. You ready for it? Yeah. Roaring che- start. You ready? Yeah. Let's go. Chess boxing. Okay. Those are two words. Yes. All right, is that cool? Can I go ahead and book that? That's no. pretty great. Chess boxing. They've each yeah, got two well, syllables. Well, what is it? If you were boxing chess, it would be alphabetical. Wait, you guys want more? <laughs> uh, you need more than just the fact that something exists called chess boxing? Yeah. <laughs> I, I got a Wait, little research What's that stuff? Here. Content? Content? Let me look at my papers here. Let's go. All right. This thing actually exists. Chess boxing, it's a hybrid sport. <laughs> it combines <laughs> boxing and chess in alternating rounds. Yes, they literally play chess at a chess table in the middle of a boxing ring. Uh-huh. In alternating rounds with punching each other in the face. Does I'm the table reporting <laughs> incredulity from the control room. <laughs> Wait, does the table stay there or do they have to box around it? The table is removed. Okay. They do not there is a world chess boxing organization <laughs> whose motto is fighting is done in the ring and wars are waged on the board. Now I know I know Caitlin was working on something where uh, people played they they played sorry and then uh, battled judo style. Right. So I think this might be that's a little a redundant. Well, and then there was one and then there was one where they played battleship and then battled with ships. <laughs> yeah. Right, that's called actual war. That's called war. Right. Um, <laughs> no, but it's funny because uh, I don't want to do that. The concept of this was actually envisioned in 1992 by a graphic artist named Enki Bilal. Oh and yeah. A, a match, a <laughs> Most match, good sports come from the minds you, of graphic artists. You remember Enki Bilal. Uh, and he had a match of chess boxing is a major plot point in his graphic novel Foi Equature. <laughs> uh, now then, uh, Yepe Rubing, a Dutch artist, was inspired oh, by that Dutch and he artist. brought the concept to life in the spring of 2001, fighting under the name Yepe the Joker. To life. Uh, now, the, all the way to today and even just in July 2008, 19-year-old Russian mathematics student Nikolai Sajin won the ch- title of world champ in chess boxing by de- defeating Frank Stolt in Berlin just, this, uh, just a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Stolt resigned in the fifth round after losing his queen. Um, so there's a there's a news peg, y'all. There is. That, that's what I want to peg this to, but you people keep making me stall and, and just, you, you know. know. But now, uh, now they got a computer that can beat a guy at chess. Do they have a Rock'em Sock'em robot to do the same thing with the boxing? That might be phase two. You know, but one of your points in the meeting, Mike, and I looked into this. You said, well, they must. They're probably not good at boxing or chess, but that's actually not true. Uh, World class chess, chess boxers are good boxers and good chess players. 
for instance, this guy that, that won the championship has an ELO rating of 1,900 while European chess boxers. Now, why champion- is the Electric Light Orchestra <laughs> giving ratings to boxers? Exactly. Really they are chess masters. Dan, yeah. that was a valiant pitch as a senior supervising producer of the Brian Park Project. I am going to give this a go-ahead for the week after next. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Dan not picking up on the subtleties, but we want to thank Dan Patchman. That listeners that is so close to what literally happens in all our meetings and then Mark says something inappropriate all right (laughs) next time on the show Ted Leo performs live in BPP studios this is the Brian Park Project from NPR News Welcome back to the Bryant Park Project from NPR News online all the time at npr.org slash Park. Because of listener demand and because you don't like the news straightforward, you like coming at it from an angle, we give you now the ramble. Joining me now, special guest ramblers, Dan Pashman hey. and Trisha McKinney. Hello. Dan, you want to go first? Uh, yeah, sure, if you like. Uh, you know, Mike, it's not a football season right now, but as a big football fan, I'm following some big news in football. Uh, a new twist in the Brett Favre saga. You may, guys may remember, even Trisha probably remembers, that yeah. uh, future Hall of Fame quarterback Brett Favre announced his retirement at the end of last season. Well, in recent weeks, he's been making noise that he wants to play after all this Wait, year. Wait, how does Bonnie Wasserman feel about that? <laughs> Uh, I'm sure she has mixed feelings because he might not be playing in her beloved green and gold Green Bay Packers team uniform. Mm. Oh, no. Oh, oh yes. I don't know what the hell accent that was. I don't know what that was. All right, moving on. (laughs) Just one problem. He's still under contract with the Packers, but they've got a young guy that they're ready to start introducing, and they don't really, aren't so sure they want Brett Favre back. Well, as they say, and this is a Wisconsin phrase, there's a whole lot of Michigas surrounding this. I don't think they say that in Wisconsin. (laughs) No, no. (laughs) But yeah, so so Favre wants the Packers to release him so he can go play somewhere else. They're afraid he'll sign with a rival. They'd rather trade him so they can get something in return and control where he goes. So they're at the stalemate. Now a new development. The Packers have accused arch-rival Minnesota Vikings of tampering. Dun-dun-dun. That is right. Dun-dun-dun is right. But but he was retired, so what's tampering? Can he's he talk still to under anyone contra- No, he's still under contract with the Packers, which means right. that... That, uh, it is against the rules for the Vikings to go to him and say, hey, if you come back, we'll give you this much money. We'll sign you to this and that. Yeah. And, uh, He's scheduled to make something like 11 or $12 million with the pack. Like, I know you're a big football fan, and so am I. Maybe it's the season. Have you not? My attitude's been like, just resolve it. I like Brett Favre just fine. Well, what, but resolve it. Can we go it back and, to something? Yeah. Well, why is he coming out of retirement? Like, you I can't hate let it go. this when people, you know, they say, it's my farewell tour, it's you know, over, I'm done. And then they, they're like, Dan no. has a counterpoint. A lot of people get annoyed with that. I, I don't, look. I get annoyed when Jay-Z does it because we all knew he was coming back. But, I mean, right. when you're talking about an athlete, you could your body will only allow you to play for so long. I believe Red Favre truly does have a passion for playing football. And he really he does love playing. a great year last year, although not a great playoff run. So, so it's he, like, regre- he truly regrets the decision. Yeah. He truly loves playing football. Yeah. And it's his legacy. If he wants to do whatever he wants, and he, he can. can't, you know, in five years, his body won't allow him to play. And Bonnie Wasserman yeah. might Bonnie be Bonnie Wasserman wants Red Favre. I should Trish. make fun of her. She's lovely. Okay. So, you know, yesterday in the most, we talked about a possible new career move for those of us at the BPP who are still looking for the next thing we're going to do. It involved um, using human waste as fertilizer. Uh, now, today, we have an important companion story to that. Uh, a companion story to poo on the field it would be pee in space. 
Uh, NASA, apparently. Who knew this? That was quite an intro, Trish. I'm, I can't believe you tied those things together. I, Very impressive. I'm talented that way, and I do need a job. So NASA <laughs> has a longstanding tradition of asking workers, NASA employees, to donate urine at the office. I had no idea they did this. Apparently, they like to send urine up to space. It's part of a program to figure out how to get rid of stored human waste in space. So they, they need eight gallons of number one every day to test the facilities of this one particular space capsule. So that, that takes 30 people, and uh, they sent out a memo, apparently, uh, asking for daily urine donations from July 21st to 31st. I mean, we're available after How the 25th. How much are they paying for that? It doesn't say. But anyway, apparently that memo wasn't supposed to be made public. Yeah. Oh. Why? It doesn't cause them any embarrassment. Because it not relates like to privates. rambling yeah. about it. No. Mama Mia, one of ABBA's original stars, and now it gets sad, can't remember how the Swedish rock group got its start. Bjorn Ulvius, is that his name? Is part of the foursome that rose to fame in 1974. He composed music for the 1999 ABBA musical Mama Mia, but he says he has memory loss. It's preventing him from reliving important parts of the band's early days. I will help him with the recap. ABBA rose to fame when the group won the Eurovision Song Contest uh, in England with the song Waterloo. Waterloo. Yes. Bjorn was wearing silver boots and knicker-length pants. I'm kind of envious of Bjorn because there are certain ABBA songs I wish I couldn't remember. Yeah, and also, oh, ooh. it would also be really good if I uh, wasn't able to remember that album cover where me and my wife, I think he's married to the other Abba lady, and my bandmates wrapped ourselves in tinfoil and posed for all the world to see. So let's go out on a little Abba. Yes! As we say goodbye Sweet. to the ramble, I think, for a little while. We'll come back with it, you know. Yeah, we'll cause, see. Because you, the fans, demanded it. And that is a one-of-a-kind ramble. It will not be our last. We can promise this. Check out our multi-sport link on our website, npr.org slash Park. Leo is the ruler of the fifth house of the Zodiac, also known as the House of Pleasure. Leo the Lion rules the heart, and those born under his sign are said to have a strong body and deep voice. Ted Leo of Ted Leo and the Pharmacists, not actually a Leo. He joins us in the studio now, free of the pharmacists, but he's plugged in and he's playing a special set for us. He's also playing tonight at the River to River Festival in Manhattan. Hi, Ted. How are you? Hey, I'm all right, Mike. I want to talk about the band name. It goes well with Ted Leo. You got six total letters in your name, so you that gives you the freedom to have a pretty long and the name. That's true. Now, what are some backing band names that you've liked over the years? Ooh, um, I'm going to go ahead and out, go on a limb here and say the news. Yeah, definitely. Huey Lewis and the news—that's a good band name. Mm-hmm. Band name. Yeah, good band yeah. name. Yes, yeah. band name. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I like uh, Graham Parker and the Rumor. Uh, brilliant. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And then there was Nick Lowe and the Impossible Birds. That's oh, yeah. kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. So what I like about pharmacists mm-hmm. to be really to really break it down is that it's kind of funny because you, like the stodgy guy in a coat, but it's not zany zagnut like it's not um, you know Ted Leo and the forensic accountants. That would just be a goofy <laughs> yes, thing. Yes, it would be. Yeah, but it's it's workmanlike too. These guys are going to work, right? They're mixing something up and they're going to work. Mm-hmm. So it's better than the chefs. <laughs> it's it's fair to read. I've thought I've read a lot. I mean, it didn't. 
come up with all of this with all of this uh, you know kind of backstory to it. But but I've I've added that in over the years. Like <laughs> yes, mixing up the remedies and fix-its and poisons and a pretty pill and all that kind of right. stuff. <laughs> right. But and initially it was just that like, you know, I just thought it sounded cool. It so. does. And your fur chisel you thought maybe wasn't such a good name? Well, that's when it, that's actually when it came up. We, I mean, all of us were kind of sitting around at one the all the people in the band chisel and were sitting around at one point, I remember, and uh, we're just like, wait, why are we in a band that's called Chisel again? <laughs> like, <laughs> how did that happen? And uh, it was at that point that the that the uh, the idea for the name Pharmacist came up, and I was like, I'm definitely going to use that someday. You want to play a song, then we'll talk a little more? Sure, yeah. All right, we can do that. Right. Intro it, if you will, Ted. I'm kind of thinking about doing a cover. Are you guys okay with that? Love it. All right. I'm going to play this just because I, I woke up today singing it. Okay. And I figured, why not? So, yeah, it's called, um, it's by the Waterboys, and it's called Fisherman's Blues.
No, a lot of musicians, I bet you played, you know, growing up um, for hours and hours on end on the guitar, right? I didn't actually start playing guitar until I was like 18. Really? Yeah. Why did you I, pick I, it up so late? You know, I don't know. I was I was a fan, you know. I just like I was a music fan. I just consumed music and I sang. I sang in bands before I actually played in guitar in bands, but it just was in terms of actually in terms of actually like, you know, taking the reins myself and and doing something um of my own. I was kind of content to just be a fan for a long time, you know. Also in rock and roll and the kind of straight-ahead rock and roll that you play, yeah, there's some sort of uh, nostalgia for the guys who can only, you know, the Sex Pistols who can only play three chords, but musical craftsmanship gets a lot of respect. The singing voice, not so much, mm. I find. Yeah, yeah, I think, you know, I think in certain certain quarters that's true. Yeah. And especially if you're a <laughs> lyricist, I'm also surprised how many guys write lyrics and they don't even care if the lyrics are intelligible. I never understood that. Well, I mean, you know... You know, there are different motivations for, for making music, and there are, are different theories about what, you know, art in general should be. And um, certainly there's a very valid um, portion of the art world that is it can be just entertainment. And yeah. like, we, all, certainly, we all need that. I mean, you know, you, you want to, you know, you can't deny, like, the power of, like, you know, going to a go-go or, you know, you know what I mean? Like, you know, Smokey Robinson songs or, or something that just really has no point other than to just make you like dance and sing along like right. that's fine you know and you know and these, those, those are expressive of emotions that we all feel too like i mean i'm not you know i, I mean even the, the most like angry political screed that someone might write they don't all they're not always walking around in their lives feeling that way you know so there's a whole range of stuff that you can you should feel free to deal with i think now speaking of political screeds or political songs all your work has always been political seems to have gotten more so lately with the last album more explicitly maybe is that fair possibly people say both things actually (laughs) it's really true like i I kind of like you know there have been songs in the the past like on the hearts of oak album there was um the song the ballad of the sin eater which is uh, it's one of the the more like kind of punchy political songs that i've that i've ever written and sometimes people seem to just want that over and over again you know and other times people really you know pull the Dixie Chicks thing I mean just say well, you want to just sing some love songs you know? yeah you can't really disinvite those people to the show <laughs> right. but <laughs> yeah and you know the, the 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 thing is like I I try to I try these experiments at just writing love songs and, it, and the kind of social issues creep in anyways <laughs> okay so so on the politics front uh, Jacob Gantz, who's our uh, director, he has wanted to know the answer to this question for seven years. Okay. So you get to answer a seven-year itch this guy's <laughs> wow. been having. All right. Your song, That's the, rare that you get that opportunity. Yep. Your song, The Great Communicator, yeah. is that about Ronald Reagan? No. It's not about Ronald Reagan. It's about kind of concepts of uh, the English language. I wrote that back when the, like, Ebonics debate was flying all over the place and uh, kind of... You know, just just the the idea that language should should remain a living and, and evolving thing. Yeah. All right, you want to play another one? Sure. All right, what do we got? I'm gonna play a new song. That most of our new stuff is a lot. It's not doesn't really translate well to uh, to singer songwritery soloy like mm-hmm. a lot of my other stuff has. It's more like just kind of straightforward and punk. Um, but I'm gonna try it anyway. Okay. Is what the heck? Cool. So. Tell me tell me what it's called. It is called um, the Mighty Sparrow. Oh. Yeah. The Calypso. Legend. Yeah, yeah. Loved it. Well, it's not actually about. That's cool. Sparrow, but... Okay. When the cafe doors exploded, I reacted. 
Catch the death, not sunny morning. I was coming to, but now I'm coming to, coming to. stuff right there thanks man okay so it wasn't about the calypso guy but no he's no. like you in a way i heard you were gonna maybe do a musical about about uh, guatemala and the banana trade I, i'm just saying that because you know his lyrics weren't just you know bob marley let's change the world it was like about a specific dictator and this right. guy needs to go absolutely yeah that's that's one of the amazing things about the history of like calypso music i mean people r really tend to only remember like the you know ban the banana boat song and stuff right. but I mean, to this day, it's it's um you know there's you they call out you know <laughs> specific politicians on the most specific of issues you yeah. know so it's pretty interesting, but yeah I did um I did uh, actually write the music for a, a musical that um, has seems to be stalled in terms of production <laughs> the Guatemala <laughs> banana trade musical yeah yeah it was um yeah it's about I mean it's it's actually kind of um there's a there's a romance, you know, that's the entree into the political sphere. Um, there's uh, a woman named Jennifer Harbury who was um, a human rights lawyer who went to kind of document um, abuses and stuff on, on the front down there and wound up falling in love with um, a rebel leader who was disappeared, and she spent years trying to recover his body. That's kind of where the story begins, and it delves into the history of not just the banana, you know, but, um, but, uh, the entire, you know, sordid story of, um, American governmental and, uh, business yeah. dealings. In United Central fruit. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, I mean, these are why mm -hmm. they're called banana republics. Yeah. 
Is this something that you're looking to do, maybe a musical or a soundtrack to a you know distinct piece of uh, film, or you know put your songs in a context other than you know how you do them, live shows and albums? It's not a priority for me. Um, I, as, as a matter of fact, it's it's the kind of thing where, in terms of uh, use of songs that I've written, it's got to be something that really makes a lot of sense to me. Not to be too precious, but like my songs are precious to me. You know, I, I, you know, like, you know if I you know. want to emphasize that point, maybe a different adjective. Yeah, yeah. If you want to take it again, you can. Um. I stand by. I stand by. Um, Gem-like. I don't know. <laughs> um, but uh, but that's not to say that 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 um, that you know right circumstances don't exist. You know, they, they, I'm sure they do. I just haven't really found them yet. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot, Ted. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Will you be playing with the pharmacist tonight? Absolutely. Yeah, All right. Yeah, yeah. So Ted Leo and the pharmacist playing at the River to River Festival in Manhattan. Check them out. Thanks a lot again, Ted. Thank you. Coming up, if your name is Bryant Parker, you're a boy. But if you are Parker Bryant, well, it could go either way. Next up, androgynous baby names and the most. This is the Bryant Park Project from NPR News. Welcome back to the Brian Park Project from NPR News. We're on digital FM, Sirius Satellite Radio, online at npr.org slash Park and on the wings of eagles. I'm Mike Pesca. Coming up, the most viewed and read stories on the internet, the most. But first, let's get the latest news headlines from the BPP's Market Garrison. This is NPR. Thank you, Mike. It took a long time, but Israel finally gets to bury its dead today. Funerals for two soldiers kidnapped by Lebanese guerrillas in 2006. Their remains came home as part of a deal with Hezbollah. For returning them, Hezbollah got five prisoners back, as well as the bodies of many more slain fighters. NPR's Ivan Watson is in Beirut. Israel has handed over the bodies of nearly 200 Lebanese and Palestinian fighters killed during decades of conflict. Some of them were killed battling Israel long before Hezbollah was even created. Lebanese media has showed black and white photos of some of the more famous fighters whose bodies have been returned. The Shiite movement is claiming victory over its archenemy Israel with this prisoner exchange. Yesterday, Hezbollah organized huge celebrations to welcome home five Lebanese militants who were also released as part of the prisoner swap. NPR's Ivan Watson reporting from Beirut. The corruption probe of Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Olmert enters a critical phase today. His lawyers cross-examined an American businessman who says Olmert accepted a lot of his cash. Police suspect bribery. Olmert denies wrongdoing. He says he'll resign if he's indicted. There's a high-ranking U.S. diplomat meeting with Iran this weekend. That doesn't happen every day, but the administration says it doesn't mean they're changing their view of Iran. The international talks cover possible incentives for Iran. If it stops enriching enriching uranium, here's NPR's Paul Brown. Under Secretary of State William Burns will attend the meeting in Geneva on Saturday. The U.S. has rejected direct contacts with Iranian diplomats unless Iran first stops enriching nuclear fuel. So Burns' presence this weekend is widely seen as a shift for the Bush administration. But State Department spokesman Sean McCormick says there's a more important point. Sends a strong signal to 
our partners. It sends a strong signal to the world. It sends a strong signal to the Iranian government that the United States is committed to diplomacy, to finding a diplomatic solution to, the, to this issue. McCormick says there's no change in the substance. He says the U.S. still wants Iran to abandon nuclear activities and won't negotiate directly with Iran unless it stops enriching uranium. NPR's Paul Brown with that story. And that is your news for now. More online at NPR.org. This is NPR. If you teach elementary school, I don't. But if you do, you won't know how many boys and girls are in your class by looking at the role. That's because there will be plenty of Madisons, Morgans, Logans, Hunters, and Mackenzies in your class. Those are some of the top 100 American baby names in 2001. And there's something of a trend towards androgynous names. To take a look, we've got Laura Wattenberg, Laura, a woman, who wrote the baby name Wizard. Baby names turn out to be a pretty interesting piece of sociology. If you go to her site, thebabynamewizard.com, there's a pretty cool Java application that gives you a visual graph of the rise and fall, and oftentimes the rise again of a different name. It kind of unspools in front of you. It is a good graph. Hi, Laura. And I consulted this graph when naming my son Milo. I didn't really want to see where he ranked in the top 100, but I was curious. Can you tell me anything about the popularity of the name Milo? Yes, Milo had disappeared for a generation, but it's coming back along with other little names ending in O, like Theo and Hugo. And they're not just coming back in the United States, but all over the world. The O's have it. And while we're on that, Allison Stewart just had a baby, and his name is Isaac. They call him Ike. Is that coming back in popularity? Isaac is also back. All of those Old Testament names that back when we were kids sounded a little bit ancient, Isaac, Noah, they're all young today. Jebediah? Jebediah is on its way back. (sighs) Yes, Zechariah, more common than you might think. Um, Do you know anything? My obsession with naming my next child will be to give him an an historic name. And I think of this because uh, there's a guy in the Congress named Ike Skelton, and his name is Isaac Newton Skelton. And, uh, you know, uh, Hawkeye Pierce was Benjamin Franklin Pierce. Do you look at that kind of historic first, last uh, middle name combos? In fact, if that's what you're looking for today, you're an anomaly. It used (laughs) to be that naming after historical figures and political heroes was a common thing. Yeah. In fact, for generations, as soon as a new American president was elected, you'd see a bump in his last name that year. But today, we're a little bit more nervous. We hold off, wait until the president's out of office, or preferably dead, and then we say, okay, I know how that turned out. Maybe I I still am angling for Theo Roosevelt Pesca, next one up. Catchy. Yeah. So can you tell us about how a name crosses over from one sex to another to become androgynous? Once upon a time... The way a name would go from the boys' column to the girls' column is as a nickname. So if you go to the name Voyager and look for names like Bobby, Freddie, Frankie, you'll see that back in the 30s, those were boys' names and girls' names. Mm -hmm. But you'll notice that you won't find girls' names turning into boys' names. Parents have never wanted that. They don't migrate in the other direction. There's so much in society like that, like you can't market a toy for girls and expect boys will buy it, but you can't do it the other way around. But what what happens when there is a name that is androgynous? Like uh, John John Wayne's name was Marion, right, his original name, or Stacey Keach, and then it becomes a girl's name. Once, Once a boy's name becomes a girl's name, does it start to die out as a boy's name? Typically, there's a tipping point that You take a name like Courtney or Ashley, and once it starts taking off for girls, the parents of boys abandon it. But there's been a little bit of a shift in the past generation simply because the names we're using for both boys and girls are changing. So today's androgynous name isn't likely to be just a twist on a traditional boy's name. 
Today, we're simply making up new names for boys and girls at such a fast clip uh-huh. that we're using some of the same names for both. Are the general conventions, girls' names end in A, for instance, are those being held too? We still like girls' names ending in A, but we like names for both boys and girls ending in N. Mm-hmm. And the real big change is for boys' names. It used to be that boys' names were not very subject to fashion. You see John, James, William, generation after generation. The big change today is that we've abandoned those classic names. Really? So John's, and I mean, Michael was the number one or two name throughout the 70s, no longer the case? Michael's still up there, but a fraction as popular as it once was. And that's something that's worth remembering about the number one name. There still is a number one name today. You'll see Jacob and Emily at the top but they're just a tiny fraction as popular as John and Mary once were. The The whole curve has fallen. The N names, which really means the names ending in the sound N, your Brendans, your Aidens, your Idens, your Cadens and Caitlins. What's behind that trend, do you think? Those names have a certain tidy masculinity. Mm -hmm. We're still not naming our boys, by and large, names ending in A, but they sound fresher. And what you'll see is a lot of those names are very similar you actually can get a whole rhyming classroom of names today. So you have boys named Aiden, Caden, Brayden, and Jaden. Oh, great. And now, so some of the androgynous names, you know, Madison and Tyler, Mackenzie, these are last names. Is that where they come from, last names becoming first names? Does that lend themselves to more androgynous applications? Last names are a really popular place to look today because you can find names that feel familiar. They're not made up, but yet they're fresh because they haven't been first names in past generations. And absolutely, those names can emerge at the same time for boys and girls. So, Emerson right now is climbing on both sides. So if last names are first names and names that end in N are popular, then I think I've just come up with the next big name, Goldstein. Excellent. <laughs> you know, you might, you're not as far off as you might think because to the astonishment of Jews everywhere, Cohen is now a popular name for Christian children. C-O-H-E-N? Cohen indeed. Oh, are there any Cohen Cohens out there? <laughs> No, Jews would not name a child that. No. But uh, to non-Jews, it rhymes with Owen. Uh, (laughs) Right. Jews cannot hear that rhyme. It's weird. It's something uh, genetic in them. (laughs) Now, I've also noticed this thing going on. My mother-in-law's friends have all – they're not horrible, horribly named. And what is a horrible name? Obviously, it's all subjective. All right, fine. (laughs) Brunhilde is a horrible name. But, you know, they're all like the Judys and Carols and Barbaras and Lindas, and that's fine. No one – of my wife's generation or the babies are named any of those names. But the grandmothers, Rose, Ida, Sadie, Claire, all the babies are being named after the grandmothers. Is that a usual trend, skipping a generation like that? Exactly. The rule of thumb is our own names are too ordinary. Our parents' names are boring. Even our grandparents' names are a little too old. Mm. You look at our great-grandparents, and you've never met a young woman named Ida. So, hey, Ida sounds fresh. Yeah. Although it doesn't, is it work less with boys' names? Because I don't see a lot of, uh, you know, Howards and Irving. <laughs> the problem with boys' names is that back then, boys were named John and James. Okay. And so there's not a lot to work with. Right. Now, a couple names are killed off by one person. Like, I know that celebrities, you know, cause people to be named maybe Britney, although I have read that she's actually more the reflection of a trend than the start of it, Britney Spears. But Adolf Hitler and Kermit the Frog killed those names. Can you think of any other names that were killed off by a single person? Absolutely. And it takes a lot. In fact, 
even a, a bad hurricane like Katrina will cause a name to go up rather than down just because oh, just the name it's, it said so much. Yeah, it's like an earworm. It's in people's there heads. There are a few exceptions, though. If you look at the name Monica during the Monica Lewinsky scandal, it just fell off a cliff. <laughs> That's very interesting. And as far as the androgynous names, you know, people don't think as they grow up what, I don't know, troubles or maybe benefits they might incur. But what do you see as a longtime looker at, at baby names? What might the future hold for the Logans and Hunters and Mackenzies? Well, once upon a time, I think parents purposely chose those names for girls, thinking it would level the playing field. You see Logan on a resume, and it could be anything. But I think we're just going to have to brace for a future where you have to ask everybody. All right. You can't assume anything. Except I know you, Laura, to be a fine woman. Laura Wattenberg of BabyNameWizard.com. Thank you. Thanks very much. And next up on the show, because of your demands, we now hereby talk about the most popular stuff that's going on that's not even on the show, that's everywhere else on the internet and, you know, various places. The most. Uh, I like the most. Dan, do you have a most? Uh, I do, Mike. How are you? Good dude. I've got a most email from the Los Angeles Times. Uh, the Mexican Navy seized a homemade submarine full of cocaine. Uh, first of all, Mexico has a navy. Yeah. Uh, yes, and they seized a submarine. It was transporting cocaine off the southern coast, a 33-foot vessel. Not in the Rio Grande. No, 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 no. This is 30, this is 125 miles south of Puerto de Salina Cruz in Oaxaca. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Navy spokesman said special forces waited till the vessel surfaced. They repelled from helicopters, overpowered the four-man crew, seized what appears to be a large amount of cocaine. They repelled from helicopters. Yeah, I guess that I just... That is so awesome sounding. I want to be there. Big anti-submarine cocaine right. mission. Apparently, this is becoming more and more common. Colombian authorities have captured more than a dozen vessels like this over the last few years, these homemade submarines, which the authorities also say are becoming more and more sophisticated. Uh, this article also wins the award for worst lead sentence of the uh-huh. day. You can't, because you can't go wrong with this story. Well, you could really, you could really hook the, view, the reader with any aspect of the story. You so would what think, they go with. Well, the, se- the headline, Submarine Homemade and Cocaine Laden is Seized Off Mexico. That got me interested. Then I read the first sentence. The nation's drug wars sank to new depths Wednesday. Wow. Trisha, what do you have? Okay, this is actually not funny at all. So let me, let's get out the palate cleanser. I have number one on Google Trends this morning is the name Oscar Diaz. He's a welterweight boxer. He uh, was fighting a guy named Delvin Rodriguez last night. Uh, it was broadcast on ESPN2 in, in their Wednesday night fights. Oscar Diaz collapsed as he was entering the 11th round and was taken to the hospital. He's now undergoing, uh, reportedly undergoing brain surgery to relieve swelling. Um, things don't look good for him. Uh, the San Diego Express News quotes a doctor saying that he was breathing and he has a blood pressure, but he was not responding to their commands. He's on a ventilator? He's on a ventilator. Um, You know, this is all, I'm not quite sure how updated this story is. This all happened, you know, late last night, and and some of these updates were overnight. The hospital hasn't made a statement yet today. but, you know, he he, all, he was fighting in front of a hometown crowd, which makes it even more painful for them. He's from right. San Antonio. Uh, it's clear why, the story, why it was number one on Google. It's not just because of the story, but I'm sure the broadcast said, well, we don't know what's going to happen. And, of course, that's what you're most interested yeah, in. Yeah, you want to update. So now, so. You go, I mean, in the old days, you'd have to wait for some news bulletin that might not even occur. 
So now you, you know, you see. Well, you know what's interesting too? As I was checking the AP wires this morning, and they're they're not even reporting it. Well, they didn't. You know, it, he's not a big enough fighter so that you'd naturally be reporting it. So they wouldn't have someone assigned, but now they could probably yeah. send someone out there. Yeah. So anyway, interested. let's you know. Keep, yep. keep watching Oscar Diaz. Hope, hopefully, he'll get better. All right, let me uh, let me do this one first before we cleanse the palate in the other direction. And this is, uh, you know, it's a tragedy and also a curiosity. This is the most emailed story of the Dallas Morning News. Headline: Balloons carried gun away in Red Lobster executive CSI like suicide. Guy named Thomas what? Hickman. Yeah, Thomas Hickman, uh, who's from Texas, and then he went to uh, went to New Mexico. And investigators, uh, and they they found him dead. At first, they thought it was a murder. He was shot. Then they found gun, a gun tied to balloons in the bushes nearby. An investigator obtained a copy of an October 2003 episode of the television drama CSI. I saw that episode. And noticed that there were several similarities between that show and Hickman's case. They weren't sure he ever saw the program, but they went to this guy's garage. He had apparently filed away portions of a gun they surmised to make the gun lighter. Maybe he wanted to stage it to make it look like a murder if he couldn't find the weapon. But the balloons didn't really get far. So at least if that was his plan, it was thwarted. On the episode, what was the point? Well, I think, I, you know, it was so long ago. I actually don't remember how that one turned out. I just I just recalled the scenario. But I think it was tried to state, tried to be staged to look like a murder yeah. for uh, like insurance money. All right. So now we re-cleanse the other way. I love this story. Mark, go ahead. Okay. Got a most emailed on WashingtonPost.com, a little blogger barista coffee controversy. If you want to get mosty, you, 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 need, you should involve bloggers because they will dig you and email you. And so you're, you're going to go up the charts. Uh, a blogger uh, uh, orders a triple espresso iced at his uh, local coffee shop and is told no way that totally violates barristery ethics uh, and he eventually asked for a cup of ice alongside his triple espresso and he got a lecture he did get the cup of ice but he got a lecture and so he blogged about it um, <laughs> late, and very angrily like it's my coffee my choice you know that kind of I thing I own it now I can yeah. do with it what I want yeah. and so he actually later he asked for the strongest iced beverage your policy will allow so that is an iced quad Americano by the way like that yeah. and oh so uh, you know so I, I like to I, drink I, I think they seized a bunch of those in a submarine <laughs> up the coast of Mexico <laughs> yeah. so, uh, so I like to drink spirits I like to drink them neat, and, and so I understand some of this, like the flavor argument, because the ice kills the aroma, muscles, the flavor, but it was also an anti-larceny uh, thing, because basically the guy was saying people were getting an iced espresso, going to the dairy bar, as the kids call it, and and basically legally making a latte, which actually reminds me of one of my favorite invented drinks. I called it the uh, Latte Dolce della Canella. This is Italian for sweet cinnamon milk, so you just bring your own glass, um, go into the coffee shop, fill it up with the milk at the, at the dairy bar, uh, add sugar or simple syrup, stir, top it with cinnamon and just leave yeah. very quickly. It's no a, one, a great, great beverage. No one ever said you weren't insane. It was such a good blog posting. <laughs> they linked right to Jack Nicholson in 12 easy pieces. And then the, the guy who owned the coffee shop like blogged in response and they got into a war and there were so many ethical issues. Not great. to quibble, but five easy pieces. How many easy pieces? He said five. Five. He said 12. Oh. Well, I you want think you to, 12 angry men. What I want you to do is take seven of those easy pieces and hold them between to your, your legs. legs. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> Laura, I know you were here and you were going to do a most. Can you do it really quick? Like, just give us the headline? To tell you, yeah. real estate agents are serving pie to get people to buy their homes. That's all that they says got. It all. I got it. And that's of course. the most. Yeah, that, <laughs> <laughs> and that was from the Seattle Post Intelligencer. Yes, it is. You, you came for the house, you stay for the pie. That is today's most. All the links are online. Check them out. And we've got lemonade and cookies for you. And that is it for this hour of the BPP. We are always online at npr.org slash Brian Park. I'm Mike Pesca. This is the Brian Park Project from NPR News.